the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Great to be together. Hope you had a great weekend. We were just talking off the air, Noah and I, that uh, he was up on the shore enjoying the nice weather, and I got a little drive-in with the family on Sunday, and I hope you enjoyed Flag Day, celebrating Flag Day. I have a gr- I had a great time. I got up early. You know, I get up pretty early, and I went for a walk, and on the way back from the walk, I got out of the car um, a... Um, I guess I have about 25, um, maybe 20 to 25, maybe two and a half foot um, high flags with little flag poles. I put them in the ground on the front of the, the front uh, of the house, and in between each one, I put a smaller flag. Made a nice uh, appearance for Flag Day, and it was early enough. It was probably 5:36 in the morning, but by the time anybody else got up, they saw these flags, so it was great. And I uh, had a great uh, Flag Day, so I hope you did too. We celebrate the flag, the Pledge of Allegiance, all kinds of uh, of memories, and uh, and hopefully you make some new ones. So I uh, hope you did that. Uh, we got a great show tonight, and, uh, and it will be um, interesting to talk to our old friend General uh, Robert Spaulding, and we'll talk about China as usual. Uh, I, I mean, I will always want to because he's written a great book, an incredible book, St- Stealth War, which I really enjoy and recommend. But I also want to ask him about the um, military. You know, how do we think about using the military in these cities? Because it feels like it's going to come to that. So we'll talk with him. And we'll also have a, a guest, uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, who is uh, over at um, uh, the uh, Cat- one of the Catholic Catholic newspapers. He's one of the senior editors. I'll get his uh, title right. But he's going to talk about the Catholic Church. And there's been a lot of coverage of the church's response to um, to the uh, to the uh, uh, coronavirus, to the Wuhan virus. And we'll hear what he has to say. He's uh, he's a pretty smart guy. So we'll talk with him in a few moments. Before we get to that, we got I got to give you what you need to know. And, oh, and let me tell you before I do that, I spent Saturday. It's already time of the time of year for the farmers market. So I spent Saturday morning from about 8 a.m. until noon at the tent over at the Great Falls Farmer's Market, not far from my house. And lots of it's a great farmer's market, first of all. Really good. If you happen to be in the Virginia area, it's really worth going to. Some great, great folks are there with great food. And there's all the great farmer's market stuff of a true farmer's market. And then also sort of add on all these um, local restaurants and things that come and make uh, different different uh, uh, dishes, including one great Greek restaurant uh, called Mama, uh, Mama Eugenia's. And they make unbelievable food. Anyway, so I, I man a booth there for the Republican Party. And it was now, it's the first time this year because it wasn't yet opened. And so here we are. And I put out, the only signs to put out are a couple of signs in Virginia for a primary that's coming up in a week and the rest are for Trump. And so here I am with this place with about 10 Trump signs and I'm there from 8 a.m. until midday, until right around noon, a few minutes after thinking, how's this going to go? You know, let's see what this, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. I would say it was about 40-60 in favor of Trump. Uh, A lot of the 60, though, were quiet. They didn't go, yay, Trump. They just gave me a thumbs up or said something quietly. And then the 40% that were not Trump, I mean, they were pretty vocal. I mean, a couple of them were like yelling, you know, yell something from their car as they drove past. But a few of them, most of them stopped and talked. Uh, but it was very interesting, uh, very interesting to um, to talk to people. And I've told pe- you before, the listeners, that it's kind of a, um, 
uh, like a natural poll. I don't actually track the numbers, but it's kind of a natural poll. It's, you know, you just listen to people over time and you start to tell what they think about things, you know. And here's one thing I'll tell you, which I have not said before too clearly, but I think I might say it clearer now. Um, if you people that really hate the president, like hate him, they can't even talk about the issues. Like one woman came up and she was like, I don't think I agree with him on this and this and this. Can you talk about it? And I talked about it. She's like, okay, we disagree. That's different. This other guy came up and he was clearly a retired military or military man, I think. And he was like in his forties, early forties. And he hates him. He said, he's a despicable human being, blah, 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 real anger. And here's my theory on this. When people talk about the president and they hate him viscerally, it's like they're talking about a bully. And, you know, if you've ever been bullied, most people have. But if you've ever been bullied or talked to someone who's bullied, it's really traumatic, right? So I think some people think of Trump and they see him and they think he seems like a bully. And if that's how you relate to him, then you hate him. doesn't matter what he says. And I thought this guy, one of the guys, he just was, he was so upset. It was like it was, he was talking about a bully. Talking, if you take out the name, the president, and you just said it was Joe from school, you'd be like, oh man, that guy was really tough. So that's kind of my theory. I'm not explaining it too well, but that's not why, what you need to know. I got to get to what you need to know today. It's very important. In the center of Virginia, there was a race on Saturday in a primary, uh, in a, a convention. They have, Virginia has conventions for the congressional races. And the incumbent congressman, Denver Riggleman, lost soundly to a challenger, and the media covered it that Denver Riggleman, the, the, Denver Riggleman the, the incumbent congressman, lost because he officiated at a gay marriage for his friend. And they made that the big headline. If you saw the headline, you might have seen it in the San Diego papers, but if you saw it, if you watched uh, Politico.com or any of the other coverage, they said, oh, this is... And I've been talking to some of my friends down there, including a friend of mine, Ron Maxwell, who's a great uh, savvy political guy, and he said, Ed, it's just a lie. The issue at the heart of this was immigration. The issue at the heart of this was a sort of America first mindset. It wasn't about the social issues. And I was reminded of the Eric Cantor race in central South, South Virginia around Richmond, where Eric Cantor lost his race. He was the number two or three most powerful Republican in the, in the House, in, in, the, in, the, in the U.S. House. And he lost, having spent millions of dollars, to a guy named Dave Bratt, who had like $120,000, and won because he ran on just the issue of immigration and the out of control, the amnesty and all that stuff. Well, Denver Riggleman, the congressman, the incumbent who lost, had voted for the increase of foreign wor workers, had said he was in favor of the amnesty, had voted for more intervention in the wars. He w it wasn't about social issues. In fact, it was entirely about the issues that are at the heart of the agenda. And when you're watching cities burn and you're looking and saying, I don't recognize that, which I think a lot of people are doing, when you look around and you say, where are the leaders? Where are the leaders, the men and women in office or in the pulpits who are standing up and saying, hey, stop this madness. Stop destroying your history. Stop destroying your community. Stop uh, choosing immigration. You know, uh, Ann Coulter's column, if you read Ann Coulter's column from last week, Coulter writes about Minnesota. Minnesota has been transformed. It's, it's voting blocks. It's voting uh, electorate, not from uh, Republican to Democrat. It voted Democrat before, too, but from Democrat to far left Democrat till uh, to, you know, to 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 out of the mainstream. And one of the things that's happened in the last 40 years in this country and in states like Minnesota, you see it starkly is massive immigration massive immigration of people who are not buying into our vision of what it means. They're, they're just not. You can say, oh, well, that's how, what do you, but I'm not, I'm not talking, my, my people were uh, immigrants, 
But when you came, you became part of this system, this way of life, this way of believing. You didn't bring the others with you. Other systems, I mean. And so you look around this country. And so back down, back my race down. Denver Riggleman uh, lost his race, incumbent congressman, to a guy named Bob Good, who ran hard and ran serious. But he primarily won because he ran on the question, on the issue of putting the American workers first, putting the American military first, not being the policeman for the world. And that's why he won. And my point here is the people that think that the issues have changed Uh, from 2016, I don't think they're paying attention to what's going on. There is still a desire to drain the swamp. There's still a desire to build a wall. And there's still a desire to put America first. And if you don't understand that, you're missing something really significant. What you need to know is that across this country, and by the way, it's pulling the parties a little bit apart. You know, in the in the in the in the neocon interventionist wing of the Republican Party, you got guys like Bill Kristol, who did an interview this morning, and he said we're working actively with Democrats to defeat Trump and elect Biden. Well, that just means you're not Republican in the same way you were before. And in the Democrat Party, they have a Catholic problem, for example. They have actively people like Cory Booker and Senator Hirona from uh, Hawaii who actively question whether you can be in public life if you're Catholic. We haven't had the Catholic bigotry questions since about 1900, so 120 years ago. And they're popping back up. So the parties are changing. But what's at the center of the mass movement that is sweeping this country is not Antifa. It's not the the territory of Chaz. It's, hey, who are we and how do we put our own interests as a nation, as a people at first? That's what you need to know. That's what happened in central Virginia. And it's a good sign. It's a good sign, by the way, because Virginia... Will put will, is indicating a direction that I think people need to understand better. And I, I was glad to see it. I, my friend uh, Ron Maxwell, who told me about this, he told me about 18 months ago, they were going to recruit somebody to run against Riggleman because he was so off on the issues. And all these year and a year and four months later, he was right. He was right. All right, that's what you need to know. We'll take a break. When we come back, we will talk. I think we'll talk first with Dr. Bunsen, but we'll be back and cover a lot more. It's Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report. Don't forget, go to ProAmericaReport.com and sign up for my blast emails each morning. And we'll be right back. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. I think a few months ago we had this gentleman on our show. He was very thoughtful, and I thought, let's get him back on and talk more about what's going on, because I think it's such a big issue. Uh, and that is Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and he is a – oh, let me get it right. Hold on. I've got to make sure. My, where are my notes now? Um, he w- is over at the National Catholic Register, uh, one of the senior folks there, and uh, all has written – He's got a, it's kind of a blog post and columns, and he's written books and all. Uh, but first of all, welcome back, Dr. Bunsen. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Good to be with you under uh, very unusual times for us all. They sure are. And before we get, I want to ask you about uh, your piece, which is a couple days old from on Alveda King in a moment. But first, I want to go back to something what a lot of people were frustrated in their own faith communities that they couldn't get back to church. And it was a little different to watch, uh, as I've told you before, I'm Catholic myself. So a little different for Catholics because the bishop of your diocese really sets that tone. And for some of my friends that are evangelical, their pastor is the one who calls their shots. And they and, you know, so it was a little different flow on when things started and all. But all in all, how would you describe uh, uh, the how the Catholic Church managed and is managing this uh, this crisis? 
Well, I think we have to look at it from a couple of different directions. Uh, the first is uh, the initial response to the pandemic, uh, and then the response, especially of the U.S. bishops, to the reopening. Those were two right. very important moments. Uh, the, the first one in our response, I think the, the bishops tried to cooperate as much as possible with the federal, state, and local authorities. And they received some criticism for actually closing and locking churches. Uh, but uh, I think the faithful, for the most part, understood, uh, the, at the time especially, the value of doing it. It then was necessary for the bishops and pastors to figure out creative ways uh, to serve their flock at a time when they couldn't go to Mass. And, and that's true for mm-hmm. Protestant churches and evangelical churches. So live streaming became very important. For Catholics, it's especially difficult because of uh, the sacraments, especially for us, the, the heart of our sacramental life is the Eucharist. So Catholics went without that. Fast forward to the reopening. And I think a lot of the bishops mm-hmm. were surprised and, frankly, dismayed uh, at the way that a number of states uh, initially planned to reopen, placing the reopening of churches, uh, like in stage four, for example, after tattoo parlors and casinos. Uh, And it was always (laughs) pointed out that um, shops that uh, sold marijuana, for example, were considered an essential service, but churches weren't. So that key word there, essential, is one of the ones that will linger for a lot of people. Hmm. Um, we're talking with Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and, and uh, among other things, he's uh, he's an author, too. He wrote the first English-language biography of Pope Francis, 2013, in uh, Encyclopedia of the Roman Empire, a bunch of a number of other things uh, he does. Um, Dr. Bunsen, before I go, I will get to Alveda King next. I want to back up sure. for this. Um, it, it, the experience in in reopen. Oh well, so you're a historian too. I mean, you you got this PhD and all, and in history and theology and all. So I do want to church history. I do want to uh, point to this. You know, I, I was I was reading. Actually, I was listening on tape to uh, Manzoni, the uh, the uh, betrothed, the famous famous uh, yes. Italian book on on One the period. The and I got to the part. Yeah, right. That's right. See that I'm very sensitive. But and so, but the point is that got to the part where the plague is hitting Milan, and the bishop at the time, Federico, he's just like, "That's it. We just got to deal with it, and we're all going to go minister the and and he there he is. He's ministering, and and, and I think it was eighty percent of the priests died. I, I might be getting it wrong, but my point here is, at, at a certain point, I thought that there ought to have been more priests sort of willing to be behind enemy lines. I don't know. Go. I mean, they, they were not allowed to do mass. I get that. Right. But they were, I don't think they were allowed to do ministering to the sick. So you had people not only dying without their parent, a family, but without perhaps their, their pastor. I, I don't know. I mean, isn't that, uh, that's kind of foreign to uh, the tradition. No. Well, that would, well, it depends in a way on uh, when you're talking about history. Uh, if we go to okay. the Spanish influenza, say 1918, 1919, in particular the fall of 1918, uh, the right. bishops across the United States cooperated very aggressively with uh, civil authorities, uh, to the point even mm-hmm. that a, a priest was arrested for refusing to stop saying mass. So there's mm. historical precedent for it. Now, when we, as you note, uh, if we look at something like the Black Death um, in the middle of the 14th century, uh, masses and sacraments were not being celebrated in large measure because there weren't any priests left uh, to right. actually celebrate them. 
So it, you have to look at the precise era and then how bishops and pastor leaders have responded. I think you make a very good point, though, that there was some frustration uh, expressed by priests that we should have been more creative, uh, that there are priests who actually did find ways to, to stay in touch with their flock. We had the, the confession shack, for example. We had drive-in confessions. In the Archdiocese of Boston, they had a kind of flying unit of younger priests who volunteered to go in, I believe, to uh, provide yeah. pastoral care for the sick. So it really, again, depended on the individual bishop or archbishop and how they wanted to approach the problem. And obviously then uh, that opens them up to criticism or to praise, depending upon people's perceptions of it. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. And, you know, the, the thing I was telling somebody about is, and I just found it while I'm looking at you, you'll know, because Dr. Bunsen is a, a theologian as well as a historian. But, you know, in Milan, 16th century, one, if you go there now, you'll still see in a couple places these crosses, and they're called plague crosses, where mm-hmm. they, nailed clo- they, they nailed shut the church, because you can't get in a church. I'm with you on that. And they put an altar outside the church, and they started saying right. Mass uh, right next to that. And my thing on this is that if I was in charge, I I would have every church, and I'm a conservative, so I don't really, I, I never liked outdoor masses. I, I mean, I didn't like that. You know, I don't like guitars, and I don't like outdoor masses. But in this case, I would say, you know what? It, you ought to just go ahead and put up a thousand, that's oh, too many, a hundred picnic tables in the yard next to the church and do mass outside and, and live with it. That's the, that lessens things. And I guess my point, and I don't, I'll get off of it, is I don't see the, the, uh, the, energy like the 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 fearlessness of where of where we're at that you'd expect i, I completely share your uh and, and understand your perspective on that uh, i think at moments of crisis like this this is when we need to have that zeal and fearlessness in our pastoral approach you're, you're making references to the great uh, saint charles borromeo who was the archbishop of milan during the terrible plagues of the 1560s and right. he actually shut the churches down, but you're right. He found ways for people at least to see the Mass, and that was very creative. At the same time, though, he went out himself to care for the sick. He, he used his own funds uh, to feed the, the, the poor and the dying, and once very famously climbed across and up a pile of corpses uh, because he found a man who was still alive begging for the last rites. So that, uh, that's mm. pretty strong stuff. Uh, yeah. I don't know if public authorities at this point would allow that, but um, right. again, it's a question of how can we, knowing what we do now about the way pandemics work and uh, taking yeah. the care to be prudent, it's that question of prudence and pastoral care and finding a balance between the two. And I think in some cases we were very good at it. In other cases, uh, I I won't name anyone in particular, but I think there were a few places where uh, an excess of caution in a way, I think, served to the detriment of the faithful. We're talking with uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and, and one of his pieces, which I'll put up on social media, is an interview with uh, Alveda King. And uh, and I guess the, in the context of that, of course, the, the, the context is uh, racism and, and how we live, live in this moment we're having. But let me pull back a little bit in that American Catholic Church. Um, you know, <clears throat> depending on what you think of their politics, and small p politics, I guess, you've got people like Hesburgh and Cardinal O'Connor and, and all down through. I went to Holy Cross uh, up in Massachusetts. So you had Father Brooks.
Brooks, who was a trailblazer. I mean, you, you, um, the Catholic Church has, has occupied a spot, I think, for immigrants and also on the question of race that's been pretty solid. But I don't see much, um, it doesn't look like they have much confidence right now. It feels like everybody, in, and not just the Catholic Church, is on their heels a bit on how to recognize, hey, you know, there were sinners in the past. I'm not defending Robert E. Lee's position, but that's the past. We're here where we are now. Uh, it, it, there's this kind of revision. You know, Christopher Columbus is on the chopping block. Mm-hmm. I don't know how. I don't know how we're not going to get pretty quickly to everybody um, 400 years ago and earlier having some major sin on their on their public life that we're going to have to expunge. Where are we headed with this? Well, I think uh, you're raising one of the very important cultural questions that we're grappling with now as a country as we try to deal with issues like racism and historical memory. Uh, I would suggest to everyone that they go back about 20-some years to around 2000 when Pope St. John Paul II was ushering in the new millennium and issued a couple of important documents. I won't give the the Latin names. Basically, they were reflecting on the previous millennium and then looking forward to the new one. And one of the keys for him was finding repentance, but also reconciliation for historical memory. And a key Mm -hmm. key to that was the purification of memory, the purification of history, finding a way to reconcile all of that in the past versus sanitizing history, where we're unable Mm -hmm. to talk about it or to learn the lessons from it. And... Mm -hmm. It, it stems in a way from a recognition of our own sinful nature, uh, that we are fallen, uh, and also the need for understanding what happened in the past uh, so that we can build a process of reconciliation that allows us to be cognizant of what happened, but never to repeat them again. And part of that is having to know the past. And so I think we have to be very careful about what we're destroying. You need to write on that one. We're talking with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. I'm running out of time. I'm out of time. But you need to write on that one just on that last part about, um, you know, a, a, a san- how we take our memory and we, instead of sanitizing, we were the two phrases, the two four words you used in, in contrast well, I, there. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I, my, my point was that we need to remember uh, yeah. and not to sanitize. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. It's really because that's the thing. Reconcile. No, you said reconcile. So you need to mm-hmm. reconcile. Doesn't mean that when you look back and remember, you don't say, "Hey, that wasn't the right way. I would have done it if I could go back in time." But that's different than sanitize. If you sanitize, you say, "Therefore, I have to remove any semblance." In fact, if you go for uh, sanitize, you 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 have no chance of improvement because you're bound to fail again. Is my would be my sense. I, unfortunately, Doctor Matthew Bunsen, very helpful conversation, and I'll put up on social media links to your stuff. But I got to run. I'm against a break. So thanks for your time, That's sir. That's great. Good to be with you. God bless. Anytime. All right. We'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Be right back. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, I want to lay out something for you because I want this to be something that you can refer back to. Okay, so check this out. It's very important. In the 2016 campaign, there was a lot of criticism criticism. Uh, of people talking about Hillary Clinton's health. 
Do you remember that? There was some people that said, oh, it's not fair. You're being sexist. What about her health? And and there were people early on in the campaign who were saying, yeah, she doesn't look that healthy. You know, what is it? She had ha- had a fall and had concussions and then had to wear glasses that were sort of bifocals, bifocals of the like uh, of the type that's uh, often bifocals that are used when you've had a uh, a, a um, neurological uh, incident. At least this was a speculation. You know, Mike Cernovich, who uh, got a lot of attention for it, was saying, hey, wait a second. Then, of course, on September 11th, 2016, she collapsed on her way into a van after being at, a, at a, an outdoor uh, commemoration for 9-11. And it did turn out. Then they said she had the flu. Remember, they said she had the flu and she went off the trail for a while. And it just, you know, here, here's one thing I will say. Uh, uh, running for office, period, especially a big office, Congress, U.S. House, U.S. Senate, uh, governor, statewide office. You know, it's still intense when you're a state rep or a county official. But and president, I can't even imagine the pressure, physical pressure in a new city every day, sometimes two, three cities, new hotel, all this kind of stuff. Stress, strain, constant. It's a it's a grueling thing. I've heard some commentators over the weekend said, you know, can't America do better to get people that are under 75 to run for president, which is an interesting point because of the intensity of the job. But. There was a lot of grief about the health issue and that people brought it up. Turns out it mattered. So over the weekend, and, and I, I tell you, I put this up on social media. I read, I couldn't believe it, on Politico. On Politico, there was a piece, a full-length piece uh, by the very, you know, well-regarded, you know, kind of old guy, old lion of the thing, Jeff Greenfeld. He's worked for, he worked for, I think he worked for Reagan for a minute, Bush, Clinton, Bush, um, and I don't know, Obama maybe. Anyway, his name's Jeff Greenfeld. He writes a column over Politico. And the whole piece is about Watergate, the glass of Watergate, because Trump, President Trump at the at the West Point event, not only did he descend on a long ramp afterwards and look a little bit uncertain because it was a long ramp without a uh, without a guardrail, without a railing. But also when he was drinking water, he his hand was kind of uh, uneven and he used both hands to bring a cup of water up. And here's what here's what I want to say. Jeff Greenfeld wrote a whole column. And he says, ah, this is really important. If President Trump is uh, perceived as frail, voters really can mind. And, you know, people will, um, you know, kind of really start to watch this and and wonder about his stamina and all this kind of stuff. And the whole piece, he goes and Gerald Ford's used to stumble, even though he's a great football player. He was uh, he stumbled and he got this reputation for being a stumbling guy. And uh, Jimmy Carter, who was kind of, um, um, you know, kind of showing off that he goes a runner, that he uh, he got in a a, a jogging race, a six mile or five K or something to show how macho he was. And then uh, Bill Clinton used to run all this kind of stuff. And oh, George H.W. Bush, he says that he threw up member in Japan. But here's my point. All this talk. John F. Kennedy, who had terrible diseases, but was portrayed as healthy and macho. All these examples of the, of these issues. And you could go through more. He did more of them. He said uh, he even goes down to Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was golfing. Uh, you know, there was a, a scuttlebutt that um, uh, U.S. Grant was drinking too much. You know, remember the um, the uh, 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 FDR was in a wheelchair for most of his presidency. and Nobody knew it. Uh, another example is John Kerry who was um, was supposed to be a great athlete. And uh, and he, of course, he was made to look silly because he was a, um, uh, a windsurfer. And actually, windsurfing is not that easy. You know, it's, it takes a bit of a, a practice and agility to do it, but it doesn't matter. But here's my point. All the way through this, right? All the way through. And you know what he never mentions, Jeff Greenfield? Not once. Any of the obvious slip-ups, flubs, and, you know, kind of facts of Joe Biden. 
where he's confused, he's walking uneasily, he's, he doesn't sound like he knows what he's doing. It's not like I'm making that up. The left is criticizing their own guy, meaning criticizing Biden for it. And yet Politico writes a whole piece, Greenfield writes a whole piece, a lengthy piece on this, and doesn't say a word about it. And doesn't, it's not like at the end he dropped out and said, well, you know, so that's going to lead to this guy. He just ignored it. Now, in politics, and this is why I'm telling you this now, so you can think about it and have it in your head. In politics, sometimes you try to go at someone based on their strength and make it a negative. Uh, an example is to um, to try to go at somebody and say, like, for oh, business. Trump is a great businessman. You go, you attack his business, uh, his acumen, and try to diminish it because you know it's a you know it's a strength, right? And sometimes you try to make your opponent get in the same spot you're in. In, in this sense, here's an example. I remember when I was running for Congress, someone told me you have to be ready to file an ethics complaint against your opponent at any point within the last three or four months of the race. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, because if someone files one against you, you have to file one back in the same cycle, in the same exact news cycle, so that when there's a story written, the story is both people have an ethics complaint. It doesn't matter what it is, they said. It's got to be colorable, you know, good enough to not be a total lie. But they said, you just got to come up with something. And we actually had something ready. Because if I had had one filed, I think we might have actually had one filed against us. And we quickly went, because you're trying to muddy things up. So if the idea is to say, well, you already know Joe Biden is frail and, and you know, flailing. Now make Trump the same way so that it, it sort of neutralizes the charge. Could be. That could be. It might work. The more likely scenario, it seems to me, is that they attack Trump for this and that and the other thing. He famously only sleeps a few hours a night. He doesn't look as healthy to me as he did, but the job must be terribly burdensome. He doesn't. He looks a little heavy. But he probably will be put on a diet pretty quick and be, you know, getting in game shape. But if you if you want to go toe to toe with Trump at 74 and Biden's 78, 77, I think he's 77, you, you know, that ultimately, I don't think that's a winner. And I said this earlier in the program, I think during the during the wink, you know, if that's the bet you're making, I'll think I think I would take the Trump side of that one. I think I would just say, hey, if you want to go toe to toe and and think that that's going to be the issue, uh, you know, that you're going to uh, outdo Trump on, maybe. I mean, it's possible. Anything's possible when you're 74 years old. It's not an easy, you know, every 74 year old is going to have some challenges. Although, you know, with a, with a uh, unbelievable uh, uh, regimen and a doctor and all on your on the uh, on the White House staff, it's probably easier to stay healthy than uh, cer- certainly easier to stay healthy than a normal person. But it seems to be a loser. It seems to be a losing bet by the Democrats. But it just makes me shake my head when I watch Politico write a whole piece on everybody else listing all these things and all the Trumps and all these concerns. And Trump could be damaged and Trump could be this. Not even didn't even write. I did a search twice to make sure I wasn't wrong. Didn't mention Joe Biden's name. Not once. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable, but I think it's short-sighted, too. In the end, uh, we shall see. All right, tomorrow we're going to have Selena Zito, the great Selena Zito. On. It's been a while, uh, and we'll catch up with her and see what she's up to. And in a moment, I will uh, let me give you an update in a few moments on uh, the situation in Richmond, Richmond, Virginia, where my friend uh, Helen Marie Taylor lives on, on uh, Monument Avenue. I'll give you, I'll fill you in on what's going on down there. It's terrible, uh, sad stuff. So we'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Be back in a minute. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report 
a daily look at the significant issues of our time from an experienced conservative perspective. Sponsored by Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, this broadcast continues the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly and stands against forces that mock traditional values, slander America, and redefine the family. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. If you believe in providence as I do, you know that Phyllis Schlafly was a unique woman created by God for a unique time in history. Millions of faithful patriots needed a leader to rally them against the greatest anti-family force in American history, known as the Women's Liberation Movement. Phyllis Schlafly became that leader. Biographer Carol Felsenthal wrote, quote, that Phyllis Schlafly somehow did it and did it alone was a given. In the minds of friends and foes alike, Phyllis Schlafly was the reason for ERA's misfortunes. Depending on which side one was on, Schlafly was a supervillain or a superstar, but she was always larger than life, end quote. In light of Felsenthal's quote, we have to ask ourselves the question, what made Phyllis Schlafly different? I could spend hours telling you about my personal experiences with Phyllis. I could tell you about her incredible sense of humor, her warm personality, and her endless supply of constitutional knowledge. I think her humility is an especially important piece of the puzzle. Phyllis was the face of the pro-family movement, but it was never all about Phyllis. She didn't make it her role to drown out the voices of others. Her mission was to empower the countless millions of passionate conservatives to make their own voices heard. Phyllis was one of a kind. There will never be another patriot like her, I think, but each of us could learn from her successes. If you want to be a leader like Phyllis, remember who you're fighting for. We've all inherited the gift of liberty from our parents and grandparents. It's up to us to fight so that our children and grandchildren can have it as well. Phyllis Schlafly was a mother of six and grandmother to 17. She knew exactly what was at stake with every speech she gave, every debate she engaged in, and every newsletter she wrote. Fight with knowledge, with prudence, and with a grasp of all the issues. Never lose sight of who you're fighting for. Lift others up to share in the fight with you. All of this is what made Phyllis Schlafly an indispensable part of our American history. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. For 50 years, Mrs. Schlafly promoted grassroots efforts to rally conservatives. Today, you can harness the power of social media by going to phyllisschlafly.com and sharing these commentaries with friends across the country. Get started at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Great to be with you. And uh, it is, I got to tell you, um, well, um, I, I, you know, over the weekend, uh, there was a story in the Washington Post about the um, uh, Confederate statues on Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia. So let me get this context for you. If you're new to this and you don't know, Richmond, Virginia has this, as a street called Monument Avenue that's for over 100 years has included about every, I don't know, long, I'd say there are like five blocks, six blocks, kind of long blocks out of a spoke. It's a kind of big uh, avenue out of the downtown of Richmond along this um, uh, double massive, fairly big um, two-lane uh, avenue with a big center uh, Island that has trees in it, you know, the old fashioned kind of avenue out of town. 
And every five blocks or so, there is a Confederate, no, is a statue, not only Confederates, Robert E. Lee on one of them. There is uh, also one of the uh, um, uh, the uh, um, Jefferson Davis. Also further down uh, Monument Avenue is a uh, one to um, the uh, um, Arthur Ashe, tennis star, African-American. So <clears throat> for many years, people have talked about these, and it's a beautiful line, big, huge homes along there. So over the last over the weekend, there was a piece in the Washington Post uh, about my friend, uh, Helen Marie Taylor, who I've told you about, who is 96, and she lives on Monument Avenue. She lives about two doors down from uh, the Jefferson Davis statue, which has been torn down off of its pedestal. And so the Washington Post sent someone to interview her, and she's a beautiful woman. She's 96, got great style. She's got this beautiful home. And she said, she, the interview, she 96. She doesn't really need to pull punches. But one of the things she said was this. This is a quote from her. What astonishes me, Helen Marie Taylor said, is how few men there are today that are standing up and being counted. She said in an interview at her home Wednesday, just hours before protesters ripped down the statue next door of Jefferson Davis. Nobody wants to be in confrontation. And then it went on to recount how one of the neighbors who's 81, who lived there for 50 years, now says that he is persuaded by the uh, anger and, uh, and the rage of the protesters and therefore thinks it's a good thing to take them down. Here's what I would tell you. <clears throat> you know, you cannot have a society that decides it will sanitize its history and choose in its history who they will honor. And let me, let me, let me say this. The, um, uh, here's a quote that she read. She read a quote about the dedication of the Lee uh, uh, statue. And the, the Lee statue, which when it was dedicated, it was Lee's military secretary who was uh, on the, at this location to read. He was dead. He had been he had died. Lee had died, passed away. And so uh, Ellen Marie Taylor took out the, um, the uh, a book and read from the recounted um, uh, the history of the dedication. And here's what the Charles Marshall, who was military secretary to Robert E. Lee, said. This statue will perpetuate no memory of infidelity to the Union as it was and will teach no lesson inconsistent with a loyal and cheerful obedience to the authority of the Union as it is. And then Ellen Marie said, that's pretty noble. Here's the point. If you want to go back and sanitize everything, then you cannot allow anybody ever to be forgiven to be rehabilitated. The left has cried for years and Trump, President Trump signed on to it. He signed on to a vision that allowed more opportunity for people to get rehabilitated, to get out of prison. We have a whole system of how people can be forgiven, how people can go about getting to making their life better. And at the end of the war, when, when Robert E. Lee surrendered, the man who is widely acclaimed to be one of the great American generals, U.S. Grant, and a great leader, took not and didn't say, oh, we'll execute you all. He said, we give you clemency. We give you pardon. He didn't say, we excuse you. He didn't say that your memory will never be, uh, never include the, uh, the, the truth about how you chose to go against the union. But that was the decision at the time of the people. And, and my point here is not to defend any of the statues. You can have a conversation about all of them. My point is to say to you that to this again, is if you cannot reconcile your history to the truth of the time and to the truth of today, 
then you have to sanitize your history. And if you sanitize your history, then the sanitizing of your history is done only through the eyes and the vision of the person today who's sanitizing. And let me say, I, let me, I won't be the first to cast a stone. I have a log in my eye. I don't know about you. You have a splinter. I have a log in my eye. But my point here is, who's going to be the sanitizers? Who gets to say the sanitizers? You know, I mean, again, do we think that there won't be some revelation about every single human being and their failures? Of course there will be. And that's why we don't look to everyone in history as the, we only look to one, I, I only look to one man as a, 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 as a model for history, a true model in every way. But as I was saying earlier to someone about this, uh, uh, if, you, if you believe that no one is able to be reconciled, no history is able to be reconciled, no human is able to be rehabilitated, then St. Paul is not St. Paul. He's Saul and on and on and on. And here's the, here's, the, here's the sadness, is the sanitizing, the sanitizing crew that is, I'm, we're watching do this are the shallowest, the media, the activists. They're not deep. They're not deep thinkers or feelers. They're not people that are seeking the wholeness of the human being and growth and opportunity. They're, they're, they're angry, which is fair enough. People get angry for lots of reasons. That's, I'm not judging that. But I'm saying don't look to sanitizers. Don't look to the angry for sanitizers. You look for the more mature. Earlier in the show, we talked to Alveda King. Alveda King's got a perspective. And others. It's a strange time, but I thought that was worth uh, discussing. And more importantly, if you get a chance, uh, look at that uh, Washington Post article uh, that includes highlights of Helen Marie Taylor. What an extraordinary woman. What an extraordinary life she leads. And uh, it's really something to see. So you should check that out. I'll put it up on social media. All right. We got to take a we got to run. Actually, we can't take a break. We got to run. I got to come. We'll be back tomorrow night. Thank you, as always, to Noah for doing double duty over on the Andrea K show. I was uh, filling in for her today. And also Joanna helping us book things uh, for the book. All the great guests. We'll be back tomorrow night. Have a great Great night. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Be back tomorrow night.